I think there were some who felt they would never have to fire. Whether they would have fired, we'll never know. But I think some might have uh, had doubts. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you subscribe in your podcast app so that you don't miss out on future episodes. Our conversation with Rob Forsyth continues with his posting as a Lieutenant Commander or Second-in-Command to HMS Repulse, a Polaris nuclear missile submarine. We hear in detail the challenges of command on these boats, their launch procedures and the conversations that Rob had with his captain about the circumstances where they might refuse to launch the missiles. Rob tells of many fascinating incidents, including a very close encounter with the Malinhead AGI, a notorious Soviet spy trawler. We also hear about his promotion to teacher or instructor for the Submarine Commanding Officers Qualifying Course, aka the Perisher, as well as his appointment as Commander of Nuclear Hunter-Killer Submarine HMS Scepter. In the last section of our conversation, Rob tells us why his views on the British nuclear deterrent have changed. I could really use your support to help me continue to produce these podcasts. A monthly donation of $4, £3 or €3 Euros via Patreon would really help. But don't take my word for it. Let's hear from Tim Slansky, one of our supporters. I'm Tim from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I support the Cold War Conversations podcast financially because of the great research and the quality of the storytelling. If you're interested in supporting us financially, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, then you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us, as well as sharing us on social media. It really helps us get new guests on the show. I'm delighted to welcome Rob Forsyth to our Cold War conversation. After your time on Alliance, you're posted to Repulse, a Polaris nuclear missile submarine. How how did that come about? Well, uh, I went nuclear. Basically, either carried on on diesel submarine, which really didn't have much future for promotion. Uh, if you wanted to get on and up, then you had to go nuclear, uh, for which you had to be selected. And from Alliance, I was selected to go nuclear and did the uh, sort of executive uh, course at, uh, for six months to do nuclear general training at Greenwich. Uh, interestingly, Greenwich had a tiny little reactor, minimal amount of power, on which we could do experiments, as they called them, to see how reactors worked, uh, which Greenwich Council knew nothing about. When it came time to decommission it, I don't know, 10 years ago, the council were very upset to find their nuclear-free zone had had a nuclear reactor in it all these years. Anyway, six months sort of sit a course there, which was quite intensive, quite uh, stressful for a seaman officer because nuclear theory is not the easiest thing to grasp. Um, and then I was appointed to repulse uh, 
which was uh, in Resyth at the time, finishing refit uh, before going to Faz Lane to the Clyde submarine base to be uh, operational. And what was your rank on that on that posting? I'd been promoted to lieutenant commander on a line, so I was a lieutenant commander and the second in command, uh, executive officer. And you had to have a command qualified second in command in case the captain ever went sick. So effectively, they had two captains on board, the actual captain who was in the rank of commander and the second in command who was generally a lieutenant commander, but command qualified. He had been captain of the submarine. And in fact, I I took command twice because of, because of circumstances. Once because my captain was ill, and uh, once because we didn't have a captain, and I filled in until we did. Right. Well, we'll, we'll probably come on to those circumstances shortly. Was there any additional, I don't know, psychological assessment for for working with uh, particularly an SSBN? No, no, we had uh, no assessment, no training, no indoctrination, no nothing really that you could describe as preparation other than just training on the class of submarine and doing the various courses to know how it operated. But no, no sort of no, no, no sort of uh, cultural training at all. I, I understand you actually did a test missile launch whilst you were on Repulse. Yes, it was the first thing we had to do was to prove that uh, our missile system worked, and it's, uh, it was called DASO. I forgot what it stood for now. But anyway, it stood for doing a missile launch. You went out to Florida, used the American range, uh, did a couple of weeks' training, which culminated in each crew practicing firing a missile. Uh, we, we fired the actual missile and the second crew didn't. They, they just went through the motions. Um, so, uh, and the missile flew down the range, 2,500 miles, dummy warhead, to uh, land in the ocean, um, tracked all the way by the US. Significant to us for two things. One was uh, we... Uh, stuck a little bulldog cartoon on our missile just to show that it was British in case uh, anybody wanted to know. And the second thing is that it launched from the submarine quite successfully. And it, it's quite a tense procedure, the countdown and launch from any missile firing, but from a submarine, it, it's even more tense. And of course, when it launches, you get a tremendous down thrust on the submarine. So it bounces in the water. So you definitely know it's gone. Uh, and then because we were a test firing, we could hear over a loudspeaker what was happening. And the missile launched okay, and but about a minute into the, uh, the launch se- firing sequence, uh, something went wrong with one of its uh, directional thruster motors, and it started to veer off course, and the range destroyed the missile. So ours only went about 50 miles, didn't actually do the other 2,000 450. We subsequently found that uh, it was probably, I think, there was the wrong oil or something had gone wrong with the oil of one of the uh, the directional thrust motors, so it made it veer off course. It was nothing to do with us. We were exonerated 
and it was considered that our test firing from a submarine point of view had been entirely successful and we were clear to go on patrol. That must have been, as you say, it was it was tense, but obviously you're, you're, you're going through training exercise preparing for that launch, but you never actually you know do do a test launch apart from that scenario that you've you've just described well no there are there are other tests you can do which is to fire inert weights effectively sort of dummies so that if you want to get the feeling for firing a number of missiles in a row you can fire dummy weights really which are just pop up to the surface, but you and you can fire water shots as well to to get the sequence of firing. But you only f- ever fire one missile per submarine. As I understand it, you're, you're whilst you're on an SSBN, there's regular weapons system readiness tests. Yes, um, yeah, that that you're carrying out. But is it, am I correct in saying that you don't know? initially whether it's a readiness test or the real thing uh no no you know it's a weapon system readiness test uh, the crew don't necessarily know because the the routine is to press the uh the alarm as soon as the message the firing message comes in but very quickly after so when people hear it first is it real or isn't it real uh, they probably believe it's a test because, to be honest, if it was going to be for real, there might have been some indication beforehand, the famous listening to the radio. You know, Radio 2 might just have mentioned that hostilities had happened. Uh, the chance of a bolt from the blue attack happening with absolutely no political or military action beforehand. Uh, so the rise in tension was unlikely. So I think the assumption is if, if there's nothing on the news to say life hasn't changed, this is probably another test. When you're submerged, you can still pick up commercial or, or BBC radio. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we listen 24 hours round the clock. Interestingly, we looked, the boat, the people in the boat, tended to lose interest after a while. The real world fades after a week or two, actually, and the sort of shenanigans in Westminster or international affairs all become less interesting, and you tend to focus on the inwards, onto the submarine's own radio program or what's going on in the boat. You start to look inwards rather than outwards. So the only people who had the radio on all the time probably the, with the wireless office, who tended to have the BBC playing in the background. Your job is to move around very slowly and stay concealed. Yes. So how how do you keep yourself, not entertained, but, you know, how, how do you keep yourself active in, in that role? Well, it, it's, it's a difficult one because, uh, first of all, you have to train. You can't just go for weeks on end and not have any training. So, And you have people on board who require training in order to qualify as submariners. You've probably got a dozen people who are what we call doing their part three, the C qualification part of their training. 
and they need to carry out, have been experienced in doing various exercises, fire, flood, and things like that. But if you do those, you in doing them, you may create a, a noise hazard or something that could uh, give you away. So you have to be very careful that that you don't, in, in keeping yourself operationally skilled, you don't make noise and give a detection opportunity to the enemies. So the timing of them has to be done. You have to be very careful having checked out. You know there's nobody within a range of you who could hear this operation um, because pressing alarm buzzers for exercise far and having people rushing around with hoses makes a noise. So, that, so that's something you have to strategize very carefully. You also, we would never like to be on a steady course for very long because people can tuck themselves in behind you, play granny's footsteps. So we were always clearing our stern arcs, constantly moving around, all at a walking pace probably. So your day, you had to structure things very carefully. And um, we used to say if you haven't thought about it two weeks beforehand, you're probably running a bit late. So it was a very strange mix of being very planned, very organized, very structured, and yet able to react instantly to the unexpected. And that was quite a challenge. And it was quite a challenge to keep people motivated. I mean, you could do lots of things to occupy yourself. You know, people made models, they studied, they did degrees, they wrote books. Um, I made a model of victory in one patrol. I took a whole patrol, just something to keep yourself occupied. But that didn't do very much for keeping yourself mentally alert. So you had to not get too much of a groove. You had to do the unexpected from time to time to keep the ship's company on their toes so they didn't settle in, settle into a consistent routine, uh, ranging from silly things like uh, – Three or four weeks into a patrol, when I thought things were a bit quiet, um, I tied a piece of string to a scrubbing brush. And uh, starting on the main passageway, which was quite long in repulse, I walked down the passageway and took my scrubbing brush for a walk to the torpedo space and back again. Uh, the interesting thing is nobody thought the executives had gone mad. They just said, morning, sir. What's the name of your brush? Don't let it lift his leg on my nice clean deck and things like this. We were all a bit, you know, <laughs> off the wall. <clears throat> but, you know, the exo's done something silly, just was just one way of just making sure things don't stick too much in a groove. Uh, we entertained ourselves. I'm sure you've heard about the sods operas and film nights and competitive nights. These are all ways of filling in the time. But, but the other worry was that uh, at night, when most people were asleep, and we did have day and night routines uh, when most people were asleep, uh, I tended not to sleep at night as a second in command. I'd try and sleep during the day if I hadn't got anything work to do particularly. And I would wander around the submarine at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning because that's when people are least alert to make sure that the people at the extremities – were awake, literally, which they were generally, uh, chat to them, give them a little sort of boost at that hour of the morning, um, and also people talk at that hour of the morning. They, they become more philosophical. 
So it was a chance to chat to some of the lads and we'd sit down and, I don't know, talk about home or things. They get a feeling for what was worrying them or not worrying them and, and sensing the mood in the boats. Presumably some people had problems coping with being submerged and in that situation for months at a time. Uh, I think some people found it difficult. Uh, I would, I think in the whole of my time, 20 plus years in submarines, I only ever knew one person specifically who, who got it seriously. We had to get him off and that was in a diesel boat. I think uh, people did sometimes find it difficult. I think the uh, the doctor on a Polaris boat or a BN didn't actually have very much physical medicine to carry out, but he was quite a good agony aunt and people would take their problems to him. So he was quite a good psychological counsellor, I guess, filled quite a, an important role there. Um but in, I, can't, I can't recall of any serious psychological problem, no. In fact, one of our problems was persuading people to go home at the end of a patrol. That uh, you, you come in after a long patrol and everybody's bonded very closely. You have this tight-knit society. You're, you're a well-organized anti-heap. You know what's going to happen. And you go home and actually things are happening you're not prepared for. There's... Uh, you're not accustomed to seeing any great distance. Uh, even driving the car, which we really weren't meant to do for a couple of days, and on a traffic lights and noise, these could easily irritate you. And we found that where some people became a bit patrol happy and they, they found it difficult to be at home and were anxious to get back to the boats, and we had to sort of say, no, 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 go, and go home, be with the family, come and see us in three weeks' time, you know. Did you talk to your uh, commanding officer about, you know, the the launch of the missiles? Yes, yes. He he, he was uh, sadly no longer with us. Uh, Tom Green, with his name, he he felt that uh, I was his second in command, and uh, we were both obviously responsible in the end for authorizing launch in our way. And he sat down with me quite early on when we were in refit and talked through what uh, what we might do or not do. And we came to the conclusion that uh, that if if there was a nuclear attack on UK or NATO, of course, uh, that it was our job to respond. That's what we'd signed up to. And we would fire, but we would want to be satisfied that we're, we were reacting to an incoming nuclear attack. Uh, we were not wishing to launch an attack first, and therefore we, which we understood we would not be called upon to do anyway. But we said yes if if the UK comes under attack, then uh, we would be prepared to fire, but we would but we wouldn't be prepared to take a more aggressive posture and fire first. And if we thought that uh, we were being invited to fire before we had been attacked with nuclear weapons, then we might not immediately do so. We might discuss it uh, and consider the position. 
And part of that would be listening to the radio to see what the situation was. But I guess if if there was a nuclear attack on the UK and you were then ordered to fire, then deterrence had broken down at that point and your missiles would be laying waste cities in the Soviet Union and, and obviously large numbers of civilians. Did that come up in your in your conversation or in your thoughts? Yes, it did. Uh, we thought the prospect of it was so horrendous that it probably, and we perhaps were fooling ourselves, I think like everybody says, deterrence would have failed. And would deterrence fail? No, because nobody would possibly invite retribution of that scale. So actually it would never happen. Uh, was sort of at the back of your mind. I do know that there were a lot of COs who found it difficult. Some, therefore, asked not to be given command of a Polaris boat. Interestingly, if you were offered command of a ship and declined it, that might bring your career to a halt. But it didn't do so for everybody who declined a bomber. It was seen as a bit of a moral choice which is interesting because it implies there is a moral choice. Um, I think there were some who felt they would never have to fire. Whether they would have fired, we'll never know. But I think some might have uh, had doubts. Did you talk about the the letter of last resort with your CEO? I don't think we had one. (laughs) I think it came in after our time. I've, I've been actually trying to research it, but I can't find out anybody who can tell me for sure we did. Uh, I did have a second commanding officer after Tom Green left, who I am in touch with the second one, and he said he can't recall having a letter of last resort. Certainly not one that needed to be opened under any sort of uh, doctrine or procedure, and certainly when I took over temporary command twice, Nobody handed me or a safe, you know, a combination to a safe with a letter of last resort in. Yeah. So either either we were ignorant and there was a letter, but we didn't know what it was, <laughs> or the one. But yeah. certainly by Callahan's time, he refers, I think, to the letter of last resort, and I wonder whether he. I, I left. I left Repulsion seventy four, and Callahan yeah. was prime minister after that. Right, I think you may not have had one because I think Wilson refused to fill one out. Yeah, but it's an interesting one if you think about it. Uh, and, and here I'm, I'm. It is me, not not at the time, thinking out loud now. Perhaps going a bit off piste. But the letter of last resort, the assumption is that you will open it because the prime minister and his deputies and the government are all dead. So actually, you got an instruction from beyond the grave. That's quite interesting. That A is, can you take an order from somebody who's already dead? And secondly, are they in a very good position to tell you what to do? And thirdly, (laughs) out there in the middle of the ocean, you actually don't know what to do because you haven't got all the information you would require. So if you were to fire, would it just be an act of revenge? And that 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 is a big moral question. Did you talk about where 
you would take the submarine after a launch or what you would do after a launch? Not not seriously, no, no. I mean, people would laugh and say, well, Australia is pretty good, but we'd all watched uh, on the beach as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, no, not seriously. So, so there was no – we had no post that I'm aware of. We had no firm post-firing plan that, that after firing we will do this. I understand you did four patrols and one over Christmas. How is Christmas celebrated on an SSBN? Uh, quietly, with difficulty. Um, when we had our Christmas, uh, there happened to be, wherever we were, quite a big storm blowing, and uh, the submarine was rolling quite deep. Because your submarines are being circular, can roll quite a lot, and the wave motion can go quite deep. So we were rolling a bit whenever we were sort of beamed to whatever swell was blowing in whatever place we were. Uh, so keeping uh, Christmas lunch on the table required us to be deeper perhaps than usual and on a steady course for a while, and we didn't like being on a steady course in case a Russian submarine tried to tuck in behind us. So we had to plan Christmas lunch not quite two weeks beforehand, but we talked about it very carefully. And we, uh, from the point of view of having lunch, we then did circles, slow circles to clear our stern arcs very carefully, steadied up on a straight course, and the captain said, right, serve lunch now. And we, think we sort of had 25 minutes to consume lunch before we had to alter course again and did it in steps like that. That, that was lunch. For entertainment, of course, we put on a pantomime, and probably the less said about that, the better. Most of it is unquotable. It was thoroughly enjoyable, as all pantomimes are, and nobody enjoyed it except the cast, because if there had been an audience, they wouldn't have had a clue what was going on. (laughs) (laughs) You were also trying out some prototype toad arrays as well, I understand. Yes, we, we... They were very early days, uh, and they were must have been very early days because they came by a barge and were great difficulty clipped onto the back of the boat, and then we sailed off and they were uncoiled. The first one lasted, I think, a day. The second one we actually took on patrol, uh, but disappeared after about four or five days. The, The securing arrangement wasn't good, so they just broke off. So we, we, we were an early test bed but, uh, of towing, but it wasn't very successful. They probably learned quite a lot from us, but uh, we never finished up with an array on patrol ourselves. Did you come across any other ships or submarines while you were on, on patrol? Uh, well, the only one I came across uh, was, was the uh, Malinhead AGI, uh, the Soviet spy ship was used to hang around off the northwest approaches, uh, monitoring the coming and going of the submarines, um, going out on the patrol. Uh, on the surface, you go down the Clyde, top end of the Georgia's Channel, turn left across the top of Northern Ireland towards Malin Head and tend to dive uh, somewhere off Malin Head. Well, uh, as... My captain at the time, Tom Green, had a, had a notoriously bad back, 
and he came to sea actually flat out on a board on his bunk, uh, unable to move very well, but uh, hoping that he would recover. And I was temporarily in command because he was in no position to do it. Uh, as we headed out past Ireland, this uh, AGI hove over the horizon and was obviously going to approach quite close. So I met down below when I realised he was going to try and get quite close and we were not too far from our diving position and uh, said, so the AGI has got us, it's coming in close. Um, do you have any instructions? And he said, no, you're in command. I can't give you any instructions. You, will must, you must just do whatever you think is appropriate. You have command. Didn't quite say good luck, but, uh, you know, and he was quite right. He, he couldn't have run the situation from his bunk. And that's why I was in command, because I was a qualified commanding officer, just for that purpose. Anyway, this AGI closed right up behind us. Came, I mean, you can't go very fast on the surface in a Polaris boat, and uh, he was hanging around right behind us, the cable or two away. And clearly was just going to follow us uh, wherever we went. And at times it looked as if he was trying to get closer and interfere with us, which was a bit of a worry. So I decided the only thing to do, really the only way I could escape him, was to dive. And to dive very quickly, which is not something an SSBN does normally. It normally takes I don't know, five, eight, ten minutes to slowly go underwater but we were going to have to be a lot quicker than that. So we, I took the boat to action stations, diving stations, briefed people on what was about to happen, uh, cleared the bridge of everybody except myself. Uh, we had already called up the AGI with the light and said, is there anything we can do to help you? <laughs> but he refused <laughs> to reply. Sometimes they do. They do have a sense of humour. But he was just tagging along right behind us. So having told everyone what we're about to do, we then trimmed the submarine down quietly, just one vent at a time, so you couldn't see the spray coming up easily. So we'd settled quite a long way into the water till I knew that the tanks were about half full and we would speed up diving that way. A World War II operation that was regularly carried out by diesel boats. Warned the manoeuvring room, that I just quietly left the bridge, shut the hatch, went down below, rang on full ahead, full dive. And we speeded up. And as soon as we uh, were up to our top speed, opened vents and dived. And we did probably the fastest dive an SSBN may ever have done. And the AGI had dropped back a little bit. I timed it so he, he'd been varying from sort of three cables to a cable and he dropped back to about three cables. So we just had enough space to get underwater. But I heard his propellers go over the top of us uh, as we hit 120 feet. Right. That, was, that was quite uh, – I wasn't frightened, but I was quite tense – yeah, yeah, miscalculation there could have. Yeah. Uh, but that's uh, what they paid us for, and that's what command was all about. Yeah, absolutely. We could then, we could then, uh, 
you know, we, we could then take avoiding action and could uh, escape him fairly easily underwater. Well, whilst the, the CO is sick, how does the joint launch control work? Well, if we'd had to fire, uh, I would have acted as commanding officer and he would have done the authentication side, but I would have been the person who used the key. But if, if he was incapacitated and unable to authenticate, how, what would happen then? Right. Well, I could get access to the key uh, and uh, the authentication of the signal was carried out by two other people as well. So the system would still work. Sorry, I'm, I, <laughs> my mind was just going through various scenarios with uh, obviously your, your CO laid up and uh, you know the, the 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 message comes through. I think you, you said you had a story about the RAF as well while you were with Repulse. That's going back to our missile firing. We were the first crew on to do our firing, and when we finished and the port crew went off to do their training, we had two weeks off in uh, on the Sunset Strip in Florida, rest and recreation before we all went home. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Um... And uh, the day before we were due to go home, we got a message to say that the uh, RAF plane that was going to fly us home was stuck in Gander with an engine problem and wouldn't be taking off next morning as planned. Well, we checked all the troops out of their accommodation, uh, ready to, um, you know, we'd booked them out. Hmm. So we had to say to the troops, go back tonight, um, be back here at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, which was the planned, uh, I think, flight time off to actually take off. But we said, well, come back here at 10 o'clock and we'll know what's happening by then and take off perhaps later in the day if the aircraft made it. But we might have two or three more days here. Oh, dear, they said, that doesn't sound very good. <laughs> so, we sent, so we sent the troops off to accommodation all up and down the A1A, the strip at Florida, uh, but that evening at about 10 o'clock at night, I think I was in the bar at the Mousetrap Hotel chatting to one or two people, and I realized that on the counter next to me was an RAF cap. So I turned to the officer who was wearing RAF blue, whose cap it was, and I said, oh, well, we were expecting some of you chaps, but they're stuck in Gander. And he said, no, 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 we're here. <laughs> we fixed it quickly. And I said, oh, well, that's a problem because we've sent all the troops off and they're not coming back till 10 o'clock. He said, well, I'll tell you what, 
if you're not on the plane at 10 o'clock, we go without you <laughs> because we're scheduled. Oh, I said, <laughs> I found the <coughs> chief of the boat, the fleet chief, Coxon, and said, uh, what are we doing now? He said, well, you take a dozen people and you go north up the A1A to all the digs and places, and I go south, and we find everybody, cross them off of the list, and tell them to be back here by half past seven tomorrow morning or eight o'clock. So we did, and we found our sailors in many places where we probably didn't wish to find them. We got them all back except one who didn't turn up till 10 o'clock as ordered, and he hadn't told his mates where he was going. The first rule of a run ashore is always have a mate with you or tell them where you're going, and he hadn't. So he had to fly home by civil aircraft a day later. So he probably had a bit of chatting to do when he got home. After your your time on Repulse, you were a perisher teacher. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I was promoted to commander, and slightly to my surprise, in great pleasure, because it's quite a prestige job, uh, I was uh, appointed as teacher. Yeah. I mean, that must have been quite interesting after, obviously, every parish teacher has, has been a student at some point, but how did that work from from your point of view um for example you know if you're if you're dealing with an overconfident student and how do you add the pressure and you know how, how does that work well you sort of learn it as you go along there's, there's hardly any time to get too much advice you can talk to the previous teacher who can give you tips and there were two teachers in parallel there was a senior teacher and a junior teacher, and then for a year, then you became senior teacher, and another one joined you because we had two courses at the same time at that time. Because we were getting, we needed more captains because the Navy submarine service was expanding, and we had to get more people qualified. So we were running two parishes in parallel. Uh, my senior teacher, when I first arrived, a chap called Toby Freer, subsequently Admiral now sadly has left us uh, so I could chat to him a bit, he'd done it for a year his advice was quite simple, he said Rob you'll worry yourself sick before the first attack but when you've done the second attack as teacher you're already two more than any of the students, by the end of the day when you've done over a dozen attacks if not more you will be 12 ahead of any of the students so he said, experience on day one, you're just moving ahead of the students all the time. Uh, if, if you follow me. So he said, don't, don't worry about it. It'll just fall into place. They wouldn't have chosen you if you weren't competent. How you go about teaching, I think, is a highly individual thing. Uh, somebody somewhere must have thought it was something I could do. I'd never really thought of myself as a teacher. But when I came to do it, I enjoyed it. I felt I was quite good at it. I think I had my own ways of doing it, my own style. Um, and uh, because everybody, I think, is fairly individual, the teachers are all known by how, how they did things. So I think I just happened to be the right sort of person and somebody spotted that. That's all I can think. 
uh, <laughs> actually doing it was enormous fun, of course, because you're doing what the ultimate for a submariner is carrying out attacks. That's what it's all about. So you had the opportunity to uh, test yourself on occasions, which I did once or twice, test myself out to my limits. But the most satisfying thing was you could see quite quickly students who just needed the opportunity to practice and would teach themselves and just needed to be supervised for safety in the early days but would be very fast learners and clearly were cut out to be very good uh, tacticians and capable of attacking and good commanding officers. And so for them, it was a case of putting them in the right position, guiding them and helping them to become better. The more interesting ones were the ones who were less confident, who didn't appear immediately to look as if they were naturals, but could be taught. Because you could, if, you, if you actually had within you the innate ability, but didn't recognize it, it could be brought out. And I probably had two or three students who I taught who I felt that if it had not been for me, they might not have succeeded. Um, and, and they were probably the more interesting in a way is the psychology of, of constantly take, showing people that finding their limits, really. That's what it's all about. You all have to find out what your envelope is, what you can do safely and where, beyond which point you shouldn't go. And, and that varies from person to person. But it, getting people to expand their envelope because they were underconfident um, is probably quite a satisfying thing to do. Because I did get some who were overconfident. And there was one, I recall, one student who we do an exercise where the ship is told to run straight for the periscope and try and run the periscope down. The student has to take the submarine deep in time to get underneath the ship. And the trick then is to get back to periscope depth as quickly as you can and carry on with the attack to get to the target or whatever um, and not get stuck deep where you don't know what's going on. And this student had a habit of uh, coming up, back up to periscope depth too quickly, assuming that the ship he'd just gone under was still going away and not checking whether it might have come back. So I briefed the ship's captain, which you could do by radio or the night before going to see them in a harbour, but I briefed this particular one by radio and said, uh, I want you to go full speed for the periscope. You'll see us disappear at the last minute. And when you're on top of the swirl and the back end of the submarine, because it always leaves a bit of a swirl on the water, put the helm hard over and come back where you think the submarine is now, still at full speed. I said, don't panic. I know you're doing it. You will see the periscope briefly, but I can assure you it will then disappear very quickly. Quite difficult for a captain of a ship to do because he's also, of course, hazarding his own ship and putting a lot of trust in you, the teacher. Anyway, Julie... Ship comes in, student goes deep, starts up too early. I let him go up early, but I've already spoken to some of the control room people on the planes and on the various controls, and I said, be ready to move very fast. I said this so the student didn't hear, but they got the message, something was happening. 
And as we came back to Periscope depth, and before the Periscope broke the surface, I said, full head together, flood queue, 90 feet. And the submarine turned and started to go back down. But as we did so, the student's periscope just had time to broach the water, look aft, and what he saw was the biggest bout wave he's ever seen in his life. And the ship passed over the top of us quite safely immediately afterwards. And it scared the life out of him, which it was intended to do. But I judged that actually he could overcome it. He just needed to realize he had gone beyond his limits. He was overconfident. Once he recovered, he actually carried on and became a very good captain. How how did you sort of add the pressure to make it realistic, to make it feel like a, a combat situation? Well, you had, you had to do artificial things. You couldn't have people dropping bombs and things on you, you know, which would have, might happen in wartime, death charge and other things. So you had to create quite artificial things. And this was an opportunity to get the ship's company, who were very keen watchers of the parachute. They all made up their own tote of who would pass and wouldn't pass. Uh, they, they, they watched things very keenly and knew who they wanted to be their commanding officers who didn't. But they, they so they like to be involved. So um, one of the things I do if uh, one of the students never really took a look at what was going on in the control room, he was only focused on the periscope, the target, was to slowly enter the control room and send each of the watchkeepers just to stand outside the control room. And you could put the hydroplanes in automatic control until finally we'd be, and I'd obviously do it at a safe moment when you could do this, the, the control room would have the student and I in it, he on his periscope and me on mine. And, he, and if he hadn't noticed, and I would say to him, uh, could you just tell the four planesmen something? And he would look around and see there was nobody in the control room. Message delivered in one. From then on, he would always take more notice. Um, other people were uh, having a fire break out somewhere. And then the chap come with the hose and... Uh, wrap it round the chap at the periscope and tie him to the periscope, like in a pantomime, things like this, things thing to try and unsettle them and see how they would cope with it. And uh, there was one man who always looked through the periscope too often, giving away detection opportunities. So after one periscope look, I told him to go to uh, the back end of the submarine and find out the name of the after-ends watchkeeper. A feat he achieved in about two seconds, but he got the message. The the failing routine is quite brutal, isn't it? Yes, yes, I, it was very brutal. Um, teacher generally made up his mind on the day who was going to pass or who wasn't going to pass, sorry, on the day if he decided a student had come to the end of his time you generally would put on an attack for him, a scenario which you knew he wouldn't be able to cope with. It sounds a bit cruel, but if, if you do an attack and it all goes wrong around you and it's gone, round, gone wrong around you because you haven't got it right, it's sort of proof of the pudding. So you generally would do that. It wouldn't work. Probably DJ flooded Q, took the submarine deep or something like that. Everybody would sense this might be the end of the road. 
And after each attack, teacher always disappeared in the captain's cabin, captain took over command in the control room, and the teacher would speak to each student as a matter of course after every attack. What this student who had just about to be failed would know that that morning teacher had summoned up a boat from the Clyde submarine base, which was hovering in the vicinity, ready to come alongside when called for. And he would have the student in, say to him, whatever it was, Pete, Fred, Frank, uh, that didn't go well. And he would say no. And you just say, I I think probably both of us recognise this is the end of the road. And... To be honest, I don't think I ever said that to anybody who didn't agree. I never had anybody who was surprised or disagreed. So you would say, so I'm sorry, but the, you know, the call stops here for you. Get you back together and uh, you will be leaving shortly, which they sort of knew from pre- previous parishes. Uh, the submarine would be surfaced, the boat would come along the side, Perisher would be off probably within 10, 15 minutes of the last attack. Skipper of the boat would have a bottle of whiskey and a glass handy, which he would silently hand to the student, point him to a corner to go and sit and have a good drink, and head off to Fazgloing with the failed student. Submarine dives on with the next attack. Back on the horse, get it going, and give the rest of the students, who were probably a bit shocked, although they might have felt it was coming, but they needed to forget about it and get on with attacking. Were you working with foreign students as well, or were they all? Yes, all yes, native? we had we had Norwegians, Germans, Canadians, Australians, a whole mix. Did they have different approaches, which didn't sort of like match up with the way the Royal Navy trained? Um, in general, no. Uh, but we had a bad patch with uh, Norwegian candidates for a while, what we had uh, two or three or possibly four in a row who were not sufficiently trained to come on parachute. They just hadn't got enough submarine experience and hadn't had any command experience at all. So that was a slightly sticky patch when we had to go to Norway and talk to the Norwegian submarine command about the experience of their people because they operated much smaller submarines and they operated them much more inshore than we did. And I think they were trying to send people on Perisher too quickly. So uh, after Perisher, you're the commanding officer of HMS Scepter, which is an SSN or a hunter-killer. Yes, that that was quite something. It was sort of uh, uh, just very exciting. Um, Scepter was... uh, an S-boat designed specifically for the Cold War. At the time, she was probably the fastest of our submarines. We didn't have any cladding. She had a, a new design propulsor, which was uh, like a fan jet in a duct. Uh, rumor has it that's what the Hunt for Red October water jet propulsion for the Soviet submarine was based on. But it was a long tube with, you know, uh, multiple blades in to cut down the amount of noise and cavitation. Um, and because we didn't have tiles, and because we were also operating well before there were any nuclear core problems, there were very many restrictions. So we were. 
quite fast. We once did over 30 knots quite comfortably, and we travelled around at speed um, very quietly. She was just a very... <laughs> I mean, you, you couldn't ask for a more exciting thing to have than your own nuclear submarine to drive. <laughs> Because you mentioned in your notes, and it's sort of, again, similar to the hunt for Red October, is you did a high-speed run down a trench with a, a right-angled bend in it. Yes. the uh, If you come down the Minshews between the inner and outer Hebrides, there is actually a canyon there, um, which opens out the bottom, and then there's sort of almost a cliff, and you have to turn left uh, not to hit it. And um, as part of uh, working the crew up, we'd done the work up and we've been doing some, I forgot what we were doing, somewhere up in the Rona range. I decided uh, that we needed to do something that showed the crew that we were, you know, things could be taken to the edge. So I decided we would do a fully submerged dive down the canyon go deep, the top end, the north end of the Minches, at speed, run down it fast, and turn left before we hit the, cl- the cliff using a one ping from our active sonar at the front just to check the range to make sure we got it right. So a covert high-speed run with just the one sort of forward-looking echo sound of ping, you might say, to make sure we were safe because it was peacetime. Um, and that was quite an exciting thing to do. If you'd seen it uh, without any water, it'd be like flying an aircraft down a canyon in uh, the Nevada desert, I guess. Um, and at about uh, what I guess was about a mile and a half to go to the wall, um, I authorized a single ping on the sonar, took the range, started a stopwatch, and then we turned left on time because time is exact, as I told people. Um, and rocketed out of the canyon and uh, then had to start coming shallow quite quickly because the, uh, the bottom comes up quite quickly and travelled on home at a more sedate pace. But it was all to show the ship's company that uh, you could just about fly this, this, this submarine and uh, we could do exciting things with it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you you were involved in a mission to try and find the Kiev, which was a Soviet helicopter carrier, weren't you? Yes, yes. We we were ultimately going to be destined to do intelligence gathering on the Soviets, uh, but we hadn't yet been given the uh, advanced equipment that goes with that. But we were sent off to the Med to, uh, actually we were in the Med at the time, we were in alongside in Gibraltar, and we were sent off to go and uh, try and find the Kiev. Uh, it was quite exciting. We we uh, did quite a high-speed run to the eastern end of the Med. She had been anchored, uh, we understood, off the North African coast at the uh, anchorage which the Soviets used. The... Uh, Air Force intelligence uh, aircraft were meant to pass intelligence to us, but we were not properly equipped. We had HF and we had UHF, but we didn't have satellite communications and some of the other kit that uh, later boats have. Um, We did have uh, an infrared periscope, 
which was quite interesting, which would have been useful. Um, and we dashed around being directed from hither to Yon, but whenever we arrived at uh, hither, the Kiev was at Yon, and we were always two to three hours behind her because the intelligence just wasn't getting to us fast enough because we didn't have sufficient live, real-time communication, sadly. Um, but it was, uh, it was nonetheless still quite an exciting thing to do and gave us all a feeling for what, uh, what we were meant to be doing. On the way home, we then uh, did by chance pick up, make contact with a Juliet-class submarine, which we were able to trail for a while and uh, get uh, some information from. And d- did you track many Soviet submarines while, while you were with SEPTA? Several. The, the, what the, the most notable one was uh, a bit of a surprise. Uh, we were on some quite mundane operation off uh, the west coast of Ireland, um, came to periscope depth, and I put the periscope up to look at another periscope about a cable away, 200 yards, which fortunately wasn't looking at me. It was looking the other way. But there was not a sound anyway. So I brought the uh, my scope down, um, and uh, immediate, almost immediately we heard an engine noise, and the other submarine started its diesel engines. And I took another quick peek, and I could see a snort mast. And we'd actually come across what was called the West of Ireland Whiskey, which was a diesel boat that uh, nobody ever quite knew why the Soviets kept this whiskey stationed off the West of Ireland. But it was sort of a permanent feature. Uh, Sonar conditions had been such, or she was going so slowly we hadn't heard her, so it was just as well we were 200 yards away, not closer. So we just quietly went into the trail and uh, she just headed south and south and south. And we went south and south and south with her, practicing our uh, training techniques on her. And she did a routine of snorting and going deep and every now and then she'd clear her stern arcs. And it was very good practice for us. Until finally we had another commitment we had to meet. We'd run out of our exercise area. And I think it was felt it wasn't necessary to keep on trailing us. So we uh, we pulled off and returned to our whatever we were meant to be doing. So that, that was a chance encounter. Rob, I was really interested to read that since your time serving in the Royal Navy, you've now changed your view on the British nuclear deterrent. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, yes, certainly. And it's not something that happened quickly. It happened as a sort of a process of time. I suppose I had half a career in the Navy and half a career out of it. So I've had the luxury of looking from the world perhaps a bit more broadly than the confines of uh, military discipline and regimental thinking in the Navy had. So you tend to look at problems slightly more broader. And come the end of the Cold War, and when the Berlin Wall came down, and I was busy with my new career in Civvy Street as marketing director for the Westlink Group, desperately trying to revise the fortunes of its helicopter arm. And I sort of assumed the Trident was yesterday's weapon, and we wouldn't be replacing the vanguards. 
So when there was serious talk of doing this, I took an interest in whether we could actually afford to do it. Because even in 2016, 2015, when I first started to think about it, we didn't seem to have enough frigates to escort one of the planned carriers, never mind two, nor do we have enough SSNs, that is the hunter-killer submarines, to keep one at sea on most days. And I gather sometimes we didn't have one at sea. So I followed the debate in Parliament in 2016 quite closely. And it was high on jingoism with a series of MPs figuratively wrapping a union flag around themselves about protecting the nation and being prepared to press the nuclear button, but quite low on hard facts as to the whys, hows or wherefores. And in, the, in particular, there was no intelligent discussion as to where a weapon system designed for mass destruction fitted in with the post-Soviet, now largely asymmetric threats we faced in 2016. The whole argument seemed to predicate on the rise of an unknown hostile superpower sometime in the future. I also recalled that back in the 1980s, several very senior officers had expressed concern that the cost of replacing Polaris with Trident would severely affect the Navy. The effect of that seemed to be taking place and we were going to carry on with it. To name just a couple of names, Sir Caspar John and Henry Leach were both very queried very hard whether we should go ahead with Trident. And I believe Admiral Woodward himself had written a paper arguing against it. So I decided to do some research of my own. Uh, as the government was proved completely unhelpful in giving me the answers at first. So I went off on my own, researched through other sources, and came up with a few surprising facts. As a starter, it's not generally known that for the last 25 years, for instance, not only have Trident warheads not been targeted, but the missile systems have been stood down at several days' notice to fire. So what's the reason for being continuously at sea 24-7 if, if we have several days needed to resume an alert state? Because continuous at sea deployment, or CASD as its acronym is, is very expensive. Not just financially, of course, but because it requires a wide range of other military assets to protect the submarine on patrol. So is CSD, CASD really necessary any longer? Uh, Vanguard is almost permanently out of commission with refueling problems in Plymouth, which don't seem to be resolved in the near future. The other boats, in, as a consequence, are now regularly conducting mind-boggling long patrols, four or even five months, and I have heard a rumour of six, because effectively there are two submarines sharing the 365 days of the year. And the crew availability must be affected by the pandemic. So do we really need to make them do this with no threat on the horizon deserving to be at an alert state? Could we not bring them in and sail them if there's a crisis? But broader and bigger than that, it seems that there's absolutely no intelligence at all 
that even in the past, the Soviets or anyone else for that matter, ever planned to attack the West with nuclear weapons unless we attack them first. Uh, this is uh, supported by Sir Roderick Braithwaite in his extremely interesting and revealing book about the nuclear arms race, Paranoia and Armageddon. He was our ambassador to the USSR from 1988 to 92, and then chaired the Joint Intelligence Committee for several years, so he's quite well-placed to know what he's talking about. A clue lies in the title, Paranoia. He postulates that it was all a massive game of nuclear shadow boxing, which just carries on despite much talk about disarmament being the objective. And that's another interesting fact. Since 68, with the big five, that's US, Russia, UK, France, China, all signed up to the United Nations Non-Proliferation Treaty, commonly known as the NPT, there have been no reductions in nuclear weapons or even negotiations to do so at all under this treaty. Which is presumably why 86 non-nuclear weapon states have signed and 51 have now ratified a new treaty in the UN called the Treaty to Prohibit Nuclear Weapons. So my confidence in the need for a nuclear deterrent and any serious attempt to pursue disarmament has been severely undermined, never mind whether we can afford it, and we can't. Our armed forces, I think, are generally accepted are well below critical mass, and the cost of Trident is particularly affecting the Navy. It's £10 billion for building each of the new four dreadnought submarines, and a further £20 billion plus for a whole raft of add-on costs such as new warheads. The old warheads, by the way, main part of them is meant to last 100 years. So why we need to spend nearly 20 billion on new ones to last another 100 years, I don't know. In comparison, a highly capable frigate costs, what, something between 800,000 and a billion? That's a highly capable one. And a hunter-killer submarine, the SSN, something over a billion. So you can have a lot of, lot of extra stuff for 60 billion. But as a result, we have too few submarines to counter the ever-increasing number of Russian submarines on our Atlantic doorstep, desperately searching for our Triton boats on patrol, which, of course, are increasingly vulnerable to detection in inverse proportion to the number of submarines we have to chase them off. And in the end, it's numbers that count as much as quality. And it was Nelson who famously observed, just to give a quote, was I to die at this moment, want of frigates would be upgraded on my heart. And today he might well add, and submarines. So in a shooting war, my fear is that we would quickly reach a point at which our conventional force response is exhausted. What do we do? Do we then go nuclear? Well, it seems that the UK is keeping open the option of using Trident in the circumstances the just retaliation for an incoming nuclear strike on the UK or NATO, as was the case in Polaris days. Current day policy is described as one of deliberate ambiguity. This means that a first strike 
as a preemptive strike with a single warhead just in case, as opposed to reacting to a strike on us in support of troops, say, deployed abroad, could be possible. Which was confirmed by Secretary of State Jeff Hoon in 2002 when he said he was prepared to use nuclear weapons against Iraq. At which point I thought perhaps I should take a look at the international law and see what it says about nuclear war fighting, which this would amount to. Well, the conclusion of a recent convocation of very high-level international lawyers was that the only place one could lawfully fire a nuclear weapon at would be a military target mid-ocean or desert, and not latter if the winds were blowing the wrong way. Just to get into just a little bit of detail, which is very relevant to what I'm saying, this is mainly because a protocol to the Geneva Conventions designed specifically to protect civilians in wartime was attached to the convention in 1977. It effectively excludes the use of nuclear weapons because the long-term and uncontrolled effects of radiation inherent in nuclear weapons would massively affect hundreds of thousands of civilians, almost certainly. But this was an act Theresa May unhesitatingly admitted in Parliament in 2016 when she said she was prepared to press the button. But deliberately targeting Moscow, or any other city for that matter, wouldn't be lawful. And we mustn't forget the environment. Basically, international law says one shouldn't deliberately cause a nuclear winter to destroy the planet. So, do we consider nuclear weapons are outside any laws? A good question for a moral maze. But we in the UK say we are uh, we are a rule-abiding nation. I was interested then to see how the government could square what seemed to me an impossible circle. But they do unequivocally say regularly that any use of Trident would always comply with international law. So how can they say that? Well, the answer may lay back with this 1977 conventional protocol, which is why I brought it up. Remember, it was specifically introduced to protect civilians. The UK and the US pressured the International Committee of the Red Cross, who were chairing the convention that put it in place, into not defining which weapons might breach the rules, but just to define the rules themselves. Fair enough. Establish the rules. If anything breaches them, then you're in breach. But, and it's a big but, after the rules had been adopted, both the UK and the US said, that these new rules would not apply to nuclear weapons because the convention had not specifically prescribed them. I was quite shocked. And I suppose if there was any turning point for me, that probably was it. So Trident has ostensibly been retained as an insurance against an unknown, undefined future existential threat to the UK. But it's clear to me that the UK is also quietly reserving the ability to use it in other ways, which I personally, and I think the general public also, if they knew, is neither morally nor lawfully acceptable. 
And it's interesting that another Trident CEO has also stated publicly in the media that he would not press the nuclear button for Boris Johnson because he does not trust him to act responsibly. And you must remember the Trident CEOs have no idea why they're being told to fire. They are trusting entirely on the Prime Minister's judgment because our UK Prime Minister, uniquely among nuclear weapons states, makes this decision entirely on his own without any military involvement in the actual decision to order a nuclear strike. The Prime Minister sends an order to the Triton captain. All the military does is provide a communication channel to do so. And here lies another thought. Is the government actually looking for a reason to retain a weapons system that is really well past its Cold War sell-by date, a nuclear battleship of the past, just to keep up with the nuclear weapon Joneses and maintain an illusion of being a world power? But whatever the reason, Trident is costing us the credibility of the conventional forces we might have to use for real. Far from keeping the nation safe, it's actually making us less safe in today's world. And as a final but not inconsequential thought, can Triton submarines remain invulnerable for the next 30 years? The whole essence of a submarine-based deterrent is that it should not be found. Well, with my background as an anti-submarine and submarine specialist, I doubt it, and so do a lot of other people. So taking all these factors into account, and now with the nation weighed very heavily down with the massive cost of COVID and Brexit, whatever happens in Brexit is going to cost, I conclude that the case for UK to have a nuclear deterrent is far from proven, if at all, and we can't afford it anyway. So the time has come for the UK to see sense on pragmatic grounds, never mind any compelling moral or legal arguments. And we should give up nuclear weapons and rebuild our conventional forces. And that's the journey that I've taken from 1974 to 2020, when I think Trident has had its day. You raised some really interesting points there, some of which I certainly wasn't aware of and i'm sure some of our listeners um won't won't be aware of i mean you know the the fact that these patrols are still ongoing without any targeting and with the system stood down you know i'm thinking of other nation because really the deterrent is is around nation states um and as you said the asymmetric threat it doesn't you know it it can't you know, de- deal with with that, but I I would have thought that even Russia would still be targeted, or or not. No one is targeted. No one. The missiles are not targeted, and it's not me with inside information. This the government has a website. All you need to know about our nuclear weapons system, and it's on there. It says our warheads have not been targeted since 1994 and the missile system has been at two to three days notice to fire. I forgot this shortly afterwards. Right. It's it's incredible that we're 
still, as you say, um, trying to maintain it, and particularly with only two boats because one of them has all these maintenance problems. Um, that 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 seems incredible, and I think the also this ambiguity. I mean, this is sort of you know crept in po- into political jargon over a number of decades i think you know particularly about you know no option is off the table and no you know and all options are on the table is a is a sort of phrase you often hear from politicians but as as you said the thought of the uk carrying out a first strike with nuclear weapons is just incomprehensible Yes, so I, I asked the government the question. I set out, I thought the first thing to do before I start to speak or say anything is, is to give the government a chance to talk. So I had a series of correspondence over 12 months with the government. I think it was five letters to and from. And finally, the government said, stop writing to us because we're not going to answer your questions anymore. In fact, they hadn't answered any of my questions previously. There were five brilliantly written brick, stone wall, brick walls, which said nothing other than we always obey the law, it's our policy to have trident, um, and that's it. Um, if I think you're aware, I've, uh, I have written and spoken quite a lot, and there's a collected edition of my writings called White Trident, which is uh, being published. And I put the correspondence in that, and it's quite interesting because it is just shows how good the government is at not saying anything it doesn't wish to say um, and can do so for a whole year. So that's why I had to turn to other sources. In fact, I spent about probably about three or four years researching this. I've read very widely. I've taken a lot of advice. I've consulted some quite eminent international lawyers. I've been to New York. I've been to to talk to two lawyers who work in the United Nations on international law and and have a wide range of contacts in, in the area which I have consulted. So I've had to I've had to discover for myself because the government wouldn't answer. But going back to where I just started on this, one of the questions that I asked the government was, "Will you carry out a first strike?" And they said, "And and they said it's neither our policy to confirm or deny. All options remain open." Of course, if all options remain open for the enemy, they also remain open for the commanding officer at sea, who also doesn't know what he might be doing. In my day, as I say in, uh, in my various articles, we quite specifically understood we were a second strike in retaliation, whether it was which one could interpret as revenge, which today it would not be lawful. You cannot target civilian cities and the old Moscow criteria, take out Moscow, which had all the missiles around it, had command centers in it, and in doing so, take out the population and calculate how many cities of the world you need to take out before Moscow gives in. What is their resilience to death was the calculation. You can't do that today. So the world has changed. That's what I said. The world has changed. International law has moved on. But my concern is that the UK government is trying to find ways around the law in order to justify a policy which is not second strike 
for an incoming missile strike in which they say the existential existence of the UK might be in doubt, but do appear rather like Trump now a past tense as opposed to present tense, but he hasn't yet gone, so he still could, plan to be able to carry out nuclear war fighting with low-yield weapons and multiple weapons. Uh, but I think uh, the concept of that is badly flawed. Far one nuclear weapon, you get another nuclear weapon back, and very quickly you have an exchange of nuclear weapons, which actually just rises up to the same state as if you fired a big one in the first case. So, uh, so, so I think our government is not acting openly. I think if we – deterrence is, is a philosophy. It's like God. Do you believe in God or don't you believe in God? Do you believe in de- deterrence or don't you? I think personally the balance of opinion that says deterrence is neither necessary nor works and we could walk, walk back from it if we were only brave enough. But I recognize that a lot of other people don't think that. But I think if you have deterrence, then I think it only should be for a second strike. And I think the whole concept of having a first strike, low-yield weapons, single warhead, supporting troops aboard, it should only be for the defense of the homeland. Once you move away from that, you're moving into nuclear war fighting, which is both immoral and actually technically not awful. Definitely a lot of food for thought there, Rob. I appreciate you sharing your thoughts there. I'm sure there will be a lot more discussion about that, but it certainly made me think about the British nuclear deterrent as it stands at the moment and whether it is a credible option for the yes. defence of the UK. Yes. Do, do, do we need it? Can we afford it? Is it credible? Is there something better? Remember the aim. The aim is actually to defend this state against attack in today's world. Uh, If you can afford to prepare for tomorrow but never use it, that's something that if you had the money you could do, but we don't have the money. And if you do have a deterrent, it should actually have some rules around it, which we all know and subscribe to because we're paying for it. And uh, there is a moral and legal aspect of this, which I think if we're a rules-based society, we, uh, we should look at. And we have further information such as videos and links in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Now, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast without the generous support of our patrons. However, I want to especially thank our Politburo level members who are contributing a generous 30 US dollars a month to keep us on the air. They are Tony Sowards, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Jeffrey Jones, Matthew Comstock, Frederick Esposito, Jack Madwed, and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you like one of those Cold War Conversations coasters and help support the show, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye.
not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.